Today's sermon could be summed up in just a few words from that song that we just sang. As obscure as the text may seem, Peter's point is the work is finished, the end is written, Jesus Christ, our living hope. And amen and amen, and it is written and it is done. Well, this morning we are going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and then the first part of verse 20, and then we'll conclude chapter 3 next week. But in order to provide some context, I'll begin reading with verse 13. These are the words of the Lord. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We need to be enlightened, to understand what the first century readers in Peter's church would have understood when they read these words. Likely would have been more clear to them what he was speaking of, but Lord, certainly for us, these words seem profound but confusing. So would you please give us direction? Would you give us insight this morning? Would you also give us charitable hearts? For if someone takes a different position, these verses in themselves cannot save. And so, Lord, help us to be charitable towards one another. Please give me wisdom as I speak through your Spirit as Jeremy prayed and also your people wisdom from the Holy Spirit to hear and understand. It is in... Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, beloved, last week our family read through the story of Abraham and Sarah and the miraculous conception and birth of Isaac in Sarah's old age. Stories like this always beg some big questions from the little minds in our home. And this inevitably gets us around to the question of, where do babies come from? 
This particular evening, however, Tammy and I were in for a real treat. Because instead of our kids peppering us with questions, and me as the dad of the household and the eyes to whom all are looking to, um, having to think faster than a white Democrat politician who's just been asked at a Black Lives Matter rally to give up his privilege. Um, instead of me having to think on my toes, the kids started volunteering their own ideas about where babies come from. They said things like, well, the mommy and daddy have to sleep in the same room. Okay, that's a good thought. Um, well, the mommy and daddy have to drink wine together. Okay. <laughs> Not a bad idea. <laughs> One of our ch uh, children said, well, the mommy and daddy have to and made a kissy face. And uh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> well, Tammy and I were thoroughly entertained at this point. Um, we kind of were interested on where else the kids would go. They didn't volunteer any more thoughts, but um, this was a very humorous moment in our lives. And the, you know, beloved, that there are some things in life that are just hard for us to understand, and our attempts at understanding the deeper questions of life can feel a lot like children making guesses at where children come from. If you've had a chance to look over today's text uh, for the sermon, you probably caught yourself wondering something like, what in the Sanhedrin is Peter talking about here? <laughs> Well, you're in good company. Martin Luther wrote of this passage, A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. Well, I'm tempted to ask for a show of hands of who had pastor pity this week. Uh, many in the congregation did reach out to offer their reflections, and insights, and encouragements, and condolences as I prepared to handle the text this week. Some reached out and said, wow, Chris, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to preach that. Or, hey, good luck, brother. And then others looked at the text as I showed them what I had to preach on, and they just made a really grimacing face. Well, because of the nature of the passage, this message may sound at times like more of a lecture. My heart is to teach you what Peter is teaching you and that you would get the same encouragement that the Holy Spirit intended for the original hearers of this word. But as Dorothy said to Toto in The Wizard of Oz, we are not in Kansas anymore. We are quite a long ways actually. So I'm going to ask you to get a deep seat in the saddle and I will try and keep this engaging as we work through some very difficult ideas that maybe you've never thought about in context to how an original reader of uh, the New Testament, particularly Peter's letter here, would have perhaps understood these words. Now the main thing to understand or remember this morning, beloved, is that whatever the next four verses mean, uh, verses 19 through 22, and we're only going to deal with, like I said, 19 and, and the first part of 20 today, um, is that it should fit the context of what we've been dealing with for some time now. If God's will requires your suffering, let it be for righteousness and not for wickedness. It's so much better to suffer for righteousness. You remember I asked you in the previous weeks, Peter's audience might have 
said, well, how much better, Peter? How is it better? In what ways is it better? Well, look at the life and sufferings of Christ and how he was blessed for his righteousness. And so we find ourselves at the end of verse 18 with a Christ who was made alive in the Spirit and is on his way to the right hand of the Father in verse 22. But first, he has a stop to make. Now, there are five main views on what Peter is referring to here, and I'm going to list them for you in what I think is the least likely and eventually landing on what I think is the most likely interpretation of this passage. We'll look at four in turn that I think are not likely, and then I'll eventually get to the fifth one that I think is likely what Peter is saying. The first one, I call this the second chance view. The second chance view. After Christ's death, he went to the place of the departed. Some call it hell, others Hades. And there is a huge difference between those two, as I'll get into in just a minute. That Christ went to the place of the departed and he preached the gospel to humans that died in the flood, offering them a second chance to be saved offering them a second chance to be saved. Proponents of this view hold that though Jesus here offered only a second chance to those who were disobedient in Noah's day, it's likely that he would offer everyone a second chance. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this view because it is clearly outside of the realm of Christian orthodoxy. God does not offer anyone a second chance of repentance after death, the writer of Hebrews from chapter 9. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. So there's death, and then there's judgment. There's not an in-between phase, a period of purgation, where, will you get a chance to think it over again. Death, then final judgment. The assurance of judgment here is directly correlated to the truth that Christ will not deal anymore with the sins that he has already put away with. The writer of Hebrews says, So, or in the same way, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with their sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Another reason that the second chance view is untenable is that it would make no sense for Peter to spend the bulk of his letter to this point encouraging the church to endure suffering in the face of wickedness and to fight it with righteousness and good if they were just to give up and do whatever they wanted with their lives and then God would offer them a second chance. That makes no sense. It doesn't follow logically with Peter's argument that there would be an offer of a second chance. Why endure all this hardship? It seems like a waste of time when I could just live a pagan life and Jesus would meet me after death and give me another option. Well, the second chance view is clearly not what Peter's talking about. There is another view called the optimistic view. After Christ died, he went to hell or Hades to proclaim release to those who in Noah's day had repented 
but had still died in the flood. He then took them from their imprisonment, a kind of purgation in this view, or purgatory, and he took them into heaven. This view is optimistic because it sees that somehow some repented after the ark was closed up, but before the flood or before they had died in the flood. So once God shut Noah in and the flood water started to rise and these people started to find higher ground, maybe there was something in them that said, oh wait, I made the wrong decision. I should have been on that boat. Please forgive me. And so this is optimistic. There's a hope that maybe somebody would have repented. Well, the main fault with this view is that the testimony of Genesis gives us no evidence that this was the case. In fact, quite the opposite. Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is why God brought the flood on the world and subsequent events leading up to Genesis 6 verse 5. We'll get to those in just a minute. These people may have had a worldly grief. They may have had a sorrow or a remorse like Esau. You know, the Bible says he sought repentance, but he couldn't lay hold of it, even though he was in tears. Oh, I wish I could lay hold of that, but I can't. The, Paul talks to the Corinthian church about a worldly grief, but what does it produce? It produces death. They may have wanted salvation, but not salvation unto God in righteousness. They did not want to turn to God and be forgiven of their sins. Another point which stands against this view, and actually against the first four views that I'm going to talk to you about, is that this view takes the phrase spirits in prison to be human beings that have died. It takes it to be human beings that have died. This is a major challenge for any perspective that looks here and sees Jesus going into the past in Noah's day somehow to make a proclamation, perhaps a gospel proclamation of repentance to human beings because the scripture doesn't speak of spirits in prison as being human beings. Now there is often a reference to angelic beings in this way but it never makes reference to human beings in this way. And in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter and in Peter's writings, he's always thinking of something like an angelic creature when he speaks in this way. Perspective number three. I call this the human condemnation view. After Christ's death, he went into the place of the departed and preached his triumph over death to humans that died in the flood, confirming their condemnation. I actually think that this view has some things going for it, and it's headed in the right direction. I believe that Jesus did go to the place where the dead await the final judgment, in between the time that he died and was buried and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. It was there that he made a proclamation, I believe, over the, uh, of his victory over the enemies of God. And that proclamation was God's means of revealing to those who had fallen in the flood the triumph of the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent. But again, the main problem with this view is that it sees spirits as departed souls of human beings. And as I just mentioned, this doesn't seem to fit the context. In addition, 
What does Christ's victory speech over sinful humans in Noah's day have to do with Christ having angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him? You see in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. This is where it's going to end. At the end of this, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and then powers, authorities, and angels are subjected to him. So it's got to fit the context before and it also needs to flow well afterwards. Well, perspective number four. I call this the gospel of Noah view. The gospel of Noah view. This one I think is within the realms of that's a legitimate view. You could understand the text this way. I don't see it this way, but I do think that it's a legitimate view. After Christ died, he went in the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel of repentance to those who were disobedient while the ark was being built, and he did this through the human historical figure of Noah. It was a vicarious preaching of Christ to sinful people while Noah was building the ark. This view is becoming more and more popular today. It does offer a bit more of a natural, if you'll allow me to use this expression, as opposed to a somewhat supernatural perspective. I'll share that in just a minute. Uh, view of the text. Um, And by the way, that's not to say that just because it's more natural, it's necessarily wrong, but we do have to be aware as Christians in the West and in the 21st century that we do have a bent towards a naturalistic perspective of things, and we oftentimes forget how supernatural the text of Scripture proclaims itself and the world that we live in to be. Second, this view was the view held by Augustine of Hippo, or St. Augustine, as many of you know him. This view understands, just to be clear, that Jesus, after his death, was made alive in the Spirit, not in a physical resurrection sense, but made alive in the Spirit to vicariously preach through the historical figure of Noah. It understands Peter to be saying that the spirits of these ungodly humans are currently in prison, though they weren't when Jesus made the proclamation through Noah in the days when he was building the ark and these people were being disobedient. So it sees a timeline change in verse 19 transitioning into verse 20. Peter speaks in his second epistle about Noah as a herald of righteousness. And they think that the people who hold this view think that is a a heralding of the gospel, a proclamation of the gospel. This is what he's heralding. This explanation shares some common themes in 1 Peter. For example, Noah was a righteous man surrounded by many ungodly people. He was a herald of righteousness as the church should be a herald of righteousness. God was patiently awaiting the time of judgment for the ungodly, and so were Peter's readers. And Noah and his family were finally saved after a long time of persevering and doing what God said. You see how it can fit a context and be a legitimate perspective. There's a lot that it's got going for it. So why do I not understand the text this way? Here are some of my reasons. As I mentioned, the term spirits referring to human beings in the afterlife is problematic. The text is not Uh, Human beings are not referred to in the afterlife often that way, uh, most often referred to differently 
in the New Testament. Jesus was physically resurrected, made alive in the spirit, not just given life as a disembodied spirit. And since he was physically resurrected, he physically went somewhere. This term is used twice, once in verse 19, and then also the same Greek word is used in verse 22. Jesus' body actually moved to a location. He went to preach to the spirits in prison, verse 19. And then having gone to the right hand of the Father, where did He go? He went here and then He went here. He descended and He ascended. He moved to two different locations from verse 19 to verse 22. Also, the word prison, which is the Greek word phulake, means either a jail cell on earth or the place where fallen angels, like Satan, from Revelation 20, verse 7, are held. It isn't used in Scripture to refer to a place of confinement for departed human souls. Lastly, what does Noah's preaching have to do with Jesus' victory after suffering and His rewards? It doesn't seem to me to fit the context. Now, before we move on to what I think Peter is actually saying here, a point of application. What application can we draw from the views that I presented so far? Principally this. There is no second chance for repentance after death. There is no second chance for repentance after death. I speak to adults today. I speak to the youngest of children. Children, this is something that I was told when I was a young man. Something I'd like to tell you. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not, if you're willing to receive it and believe it, guaranteed the very next breath that you're going to take. At any moment, God could demand your life from you. At any moment, adults, God could demand our lives from us. He could demand, now is the time that I've appointed for you to die and then face the judgment. Now is the time. And that's why Paul says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to look upon that crucified Christ that we talked about last week. The only Son of God, born of a virgin, perfectly lived life in obedience to the entire law of God, fulfilling all righteousness, and yet being the substitute sacrifice in the place of ruined sinners. And if today you have not settled accounts with that Christ, if you have not bowed the knee to that Christ, if you have not submitted all of your hope and all of your faith and all of your sin before that Christ, that He might take it away. Remember, there is no second chance after death. I remember as a young man often thinking, I can pray the prayer tomorrow. I can think about God tomorrow. I can do this tomorrow or that tomorrow. I grew up in a church where they told us, you know, you say these magic words and you, you come to Christ, right? And we, we don't believe as Reformed Christians that there's a list of magic words, a, a Roman road that you have to work through in your mind. You have to repent of your sins, of vomiting of the soul. I hate what I'm doing like the prodigal son. I'm sitting here. I'm eating out of this pig's trough. No more. Forget it. I'm going back to my father. That's the symbol, the sign, the picture of repentance. If you do that and all of your hope is placed on Christ, He saves you every time. There's not one repenter that He's ever turned away. Every time, He always welcomes them in. Completely fully, He never turns any of them back. If you've repented in that way, then you are saved. 
But if you have not repented in that way, don't let the enemy tell you. Don't let your flesh tell you there's tomorrow. I can do what I need to do tomorrow. I can look at my sin tomorrow. I can address my wicked heart and my rebellion against God tomorrow. There's no second chance. There may not be a tomorrow. The future is not guaranteed. Settle accounts with this Christ now. Well, the view that I'm going to propose that Peter is getting at here is a view that I call the triumph over principalities view. The triumph over principalities view. What I'm about to present to you as the meaning of this text is likely going to sound very strange to many of you. I might sound like a five-year-old trying to tell you where babies come from. Well, you see, um, there's this stork, and when Daddy kisses Mommy, so on and so forth, I'll say at the outset that what I'm going to propose is not a salvific doctrine. What I just told you about Christ, about repentance, about your sin and the need for forgiveness is salvific. That is the gospel. It is crucial. But this doctrine that we're discussing right here is not essential that you agree with me in order that you make it to the ascended place where Jesus is. If you disagree with what I say, we can still be friends, we can still be in covenant together, and you cannot still be firmly convinced in your own mind. At Christ the King, we say that we are radically committed to the core truths of Scripture but we are liberally minded towards secondary matters. So I ask for some charity as I lay out some things that may sound different than what you're used to hearing. The triumph over principalities view. After Christ died, but before He ascended to the right hand of the Father, you see in verse 22, He, that is Jesus, went and made a proclamation of total victory to the fallen angels who sinned by marrying human women before the flood. He went and made a proclamation of total victory to fallen angels who had sinned by marrying human women before the flood. In order to understand what Peter is saying in verse 19, we have to answer three questions. In order for me to get to the perspective I've got, I had to answer these three basic questions. Where did Christ go? Who did he speak to and what did he say? Where did he go? Who did he speak to and what did he say? Now we've already discussed a couple of these in some detail. First, where did he go? Christ, after his death, went into the place of the departed, known in the New Testament as Hades and known in the Old Testament as Sheol or Sheol. Jonah speaks of his being in Sheol in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah says, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Have you ever considered the possibility that when Jonah was swallowed by the great fish, he could have actually died? Have you ever considered that possibility? There's some strong support for that within the text. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried to you, and you heard my voice. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is speaking here 
of his being in the place of the dead. He did tell the thief on the cross that that day they would both be in paradise together. Jesus' body would be in a tomb, but Jesus himself would be with that thief in paradise that day. This is not the equivalent of Christ descending into hell. The word hell is an old Anglo-Saxon word and is synonymous in our minds, or should be synonymous in our minds, with what Revelation calls the lake of fire. The Old Testament has a word for this as well. It's called Gehenna, which describes the final location of the damned. This name came from the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. It's called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, where the Jews would burn their trash. Now, think about this, beloved. In a place where there was trash being thrown, and in order to get rid of the garbage, they were burning it, what things would you often see? You would see worms that do not die, and a fire that is never quenched. Isn't that interesting? It became a metaphor for the final place after the judgment where people would be cast into the lake of fire. In contrast to the place of eternal punishment, the writers of the Bible and people in the ancient world believed in a holding place for the souls of the dead to go and await the last day. No, this is not purgatory, but you can see where Catholics get the idea for this. You can see where that idea, they didn't just come up with this thing out of nowhere and say, okay, we're going to throw this out so we can have more control over people. This actually came from a historical context. This is called Sheol in the Old Testament and Hades in the New Testament. An example from the Old Testament. Number 16, Korah and all those who rebelled against Moses were swallowed up by the earth and went down alive into Sheol. In Luke 16, the rich man died and went into torment in Hades, which was not his final destination. You remember that his brothers were still alive. He was making appeals to Abraham. Please send somebody to my brothers. They're still alive. This isn't after the final judgment. This is a place for him to await his final judgment where he is in torment for his wickedness. Now, I'm going to try and put a bow on it to make sense of where Jesus went. Where did he go? And I'm going to use a passage from Revelation chapter 20. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, the sky... And the earth fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now listen to where John's revelation takes us next. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So that holding place, gone, gets rid of it, thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So I'm understanding that Jesus, after his death, and in fulfillment of his own words about his descent into the earth, went to a real place in the unseen world called Hades, but not hell. The hardest thing I have to convince you of this morning is that Hades and hell are not synonymous terms. You'll either think Hades and hell are the same, or when you think of Hades, you'll think of Disney's Hercules and this place where he went into this pit. And We've all got those kind of colloquial memories in our minds. Think of Hades as the place where you're awaiting your final judgment. The rich man suffering there. And even if you'll accept it, Lazarus himself being at Abraham's side, still in a place awaiting his final judgment. By the way, I had a midweek theological adjustment to make as I was studying this week. I have for some time, when we recite the Apostles' Creed, not said the part of the Apostles' Creed that says Jesus descended into hell. I've just not said that. I've refused to say that. I've never seen in Scripture where it says Jesus descended into hell, the place of final judgment. He had to suffer after the cross by going into the place of final judgment and there was something else that needed to be done. It sounds like suffering continues. But when he said it was finished, it truly was finished. It was over. It was done. All the wrath of God had been poured out on Christ. However, as I studied this week, I see it does appear that Jesus went to the place of the departed, Hades in the New Testament. So it is not wrong in the Apostles' Creed and in the earliest versions, it had not the word hell, but it had the word Hades. He descended into Hades. So yes, he descended in Ephesians chapter 4, I think it is, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. You have both of those thoughts right here from verses 19 to 22. In 1 Peter chapter 3. Well, Christ went to the place of the departed in the New Testament known as Hades. Who did he speak to? He went into Hades to speak to the fallen angels from Genesis 6, 1 through 4. I mentioned earlier my reasons for understanding the spirits in prison to be fallen angels rather than reprobate humanity. But can we be more specific about who these angelic beings are? Or who they were? We have an important marker in verse 20, if you'll let your eyes drift down from verse 19 to verse 20, where it says that those spirits in prison formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being Prepared. This event is recorded for us, I believe, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in a man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years." The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. This passage alone would take a whole sermon to exegete, but I take sons of God here to be angelic beings. And if you read through the Old Testament, almost every time that phrase is used, it refers to angelic beings. 
It's, it's crystal clear in Job's chapter one, Job chapter 1 and 2. Sons of God are the angels standing before the throne of God. Now you might have a question arise in your mind, Chris. How are the angels doing this? Doesn't Jesus say that angels can't marry? And this comes from Matthew 22, verse 30. But it does not say that angels cannot marry. It just says that they don't marry. Okay? It doesn't say that they cannot marry. It says that they don't marry. We're here talking about fallen angels. And this group doesn't give two hay pennies about what God says. He may have told me to stay in my station. He may have told me to stay within the boundaries of what He's ordained for me. But I already don't care about what He says. Let me give you some scriptural evidence to support this. This is from Jude verses 6 and 7. And the angels who did not stay within their own domain but abandoned their proper dwelling, some translations use the term raiment, even their angelic nature, they left this and these... He, that is God, is kept in eternal chains under darkness bound for judgment on that great day. Now listen to this. In like manner, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them who indulged in sexual immorality and pursued strange flesh. Isn't that interesting? Angels didn't stay within their domain. They left it. And because of that, God bound them in chains in gloomy darkness. And in the same way, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah committed sexual immorality and went after strange flesh. They are on display as an example of those who sustain the punishment of eternal fire. So it seems that the writer here, Jude, is confirming the interpretation of Genesis 6 that takes the sons of God to be fallen angels who married and had offspring with human women. Okay, so you might say, Chris, if I grant that what you're saying is accurate, why would those angels have done this? What was their goal? And why did God want to exterminate them and their offspring? Now, the scripture, honestly, beloved, does not record their motives. But I think a good guess can be made. You remember that Satan was told that the seed of the woman would give him his death blow. The seed of the woman would give the death blow to the serpent. So did Satan at that point say, well, I resign myself to being defeated. I guess there's nothing I can do. I'll just have to await that day when I'm crushed by the seed of the woman. No, he went off to make war on the seed of the woman. He gathered his lot together and they went to make war on the seed of the woman in any and every way that they could. You'll remember that the reason for the flood and also God's having to be patient with mankind while Noah spent all those years building the ark was that sin was increasing on the earth. Why was sin increasing? Genesis 6. These angels, these women, offspring, and sin begins to multiply. This is exactly what Satan wanted. Not just that. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually took place right after the angels rebelled. They began to lead the world further astray and 
Their intermarrying led to a race of beings that polluted the line of men and threatened to prevent there from being a seed of the woman in the first place. It was these fallen angels to whom Christ went to make a proclamation. Now, Christ went to Hades. I believe he went to fallen angels. What did he say? He went to proclaim his final victory over them, having died on the cross and being raised to new life. The Greek word caruso, this proclamation that's made in the ESV, NASB, and Christian Standard Bibles, is a general term for proclaiming something. It is often used to describe the proclamation of the gospel, but not exclusively that term in Greek is euangelion. We've spoke about that in the past. Christ did not go into Hades to preach the gospel to the fallen angels, save that in recounting the events that make up the gospel, he declared to them their absolute and final defeat. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. But why, Chris? Why did he do this? What's the point of Jesus descending into the underworld to make this proclamation? In our hyper-technological age, we have this constant sense of a kind of omniscience. We can know anything we want at all times. We need to remember that created beings, including angels, don't know all things at all times. The angels who had rebelled before the flood and were trying to pollute the race of men and were drowned in the flood and even now are in Hades... We're not getting text updates on the seed of the woman. It may sound a little silly to say it that way. But you can imagine a band of demons together in the underworld. Hey guys, I just read that Jesus was denied three times. Three cheers. Jesus was nailed to the cross. Three cheers. Jesus rose from the dead, guys. Oh no. They weren't getting text updates. They had no way of knowing. They're sitting there awaiting their final judgment. And then Jesus, the risen and victorious king of the universe, walks into Hades. He gets the attention of this rebel group and he holds up his nail-pierced hands. And he says, I won, you lost. You tried to defeat me. You tried to keep me from crushing the head of the serpent. I won, you lost. Scoreboard. Scoreboard. Now, Chris, that sounds a little braggadocious. I mean, Christ isn't a prideful God. But remember, beloved, it is not wrong for Christ to seek His own glory. It is not wrong for Jesus to get the glory that He deserves. So, from verse 22 of 1 Peter 3, look where this all ends. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers now subject to Him. The moment of subjugation was when he walked in and said, it's over, I'm in charge now. It's over, I rule this universe now. All authority in heaven and earth has now been given to me. You answer to me. Now, before I go on to the conclusion, just a brief word of application. 
Please be charitable when others hold theological positions that you might disagree with. Doug Wilson says of the millennium, which Christians have quite a bit to say about, that the millennial reign of Christ in Revelation 20 is a thousand years of peace, and Christians love to fight about it. <laughs> True words. Nothing threatens to, chair, to tear a church like ours apart, like factions and division. One of the things that Brother Ken Walker prays regularly at the Wednesday night prayer meeting is for unity. He knows that we will hold different opinions as the church of Jesus, this side of heaven, we won't reach uniformity. But I'm always glad to hear Ken vocalize a prayer for maintaining the unity of our church. It's one of those precious prayers that I always look forward to hearing. He's praying that God would protect our church from a spirit of divisiveness, a spirit of, well, I've got this figured out. So if our church would just believe that it was actually Jesus preaching through Noah, we would all be in the right place. Please be charitable. The apostolic solution to issues where a freedom of conscience is required is to be firmly convinced in your own mind from Romans 14 verse 5 and then the conclusion, pursue what makes for peace. If you can't help but get in an argument where you've got to be right over some issue, drop it and pursue what makes for peace. Quit fighting about it. None of this negates an iron sharpens iron or healthy debate and mutual discipleship. We need this, beloved. We need this. So the question is, Chris, how do I know if I'm approaching those conversations right? I've heard them make a really strong statement, and I want to ask them, are you sure you're in the right place there? I would tell you, start by taking a blood pressure test. I know that sounds silly. Start by taking a blood pressure test. Fathers, you know when your children come in from outside, one child's screaming, another child is saying, no, 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 wait. And what happens? Your blood pressure's already getting up. Dad, you don't need to deal with the problem. Sit her down, sit her down, sit him down, whoever's involved, and calm down. This is not about you. This is about God and His holiness and you dealing with your children. And beloved, in the church of Jesus... When we've got differences of opinion, this isn't about us. Chris thinks it's angels. I think it's Noah. This is ridiculous. How can he believe? Whoa, it's not about us. We want them to see something in the scripture clearly because we want them to know what God says, not because we want to prove that we're right. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So how does this interpretation fit the text? How does this make sense of what Peter's been saying? If you're going to suffer for righteousness, if it's God's will, do what He wants you to do. Don't suffer for sin. It's so much better to suffer for righteousness. How much better, Chris? I'm suffering right now and it doesn't feel better. Remember Jesus? Remember what He suffered? One of the big themes that we've seen in 1 Peter is the end times or eschatological hope of believers. You can endure whatever God's providence allows because Christ has already proclaimed his victory over all principalities and powers that stood in his way. This is the scoreboard moment. This is the remember you are victorious in Christ already. To the depths of shale, to Hades he went and said, It's over, you lost. 
Victory is mine. So when you're suffering, remember, victory is mine. A suffering congregation who has lost family members, loved ones, jobs, security, and to this point hasn't seen a a huge tangible return yet compared to the marvelous gospel expansion over the last 2,000 years. Beloved, we are so blessed to live in the time that we do. So much gospel expansion all over the world. The church in Peter's day did not have that. I mean, you're joining a sect or a cult and where's this thing going? Where's the improvement? Where's the advancement? And I'm losing homes and everything over this. I put in all my chips with Jesus. What hope do I have? He went to the depths and said, it's over. I won. I'm victorious. We need to remember to see the forest in spite of the trees. You can likely tell the difference between the terms arborist and forester just in the name. An arborist is someone who studies individual trees. Okay, that's an oak, that's a sumac, that's a pine. Look at the differences in the leaves, the sap, bark, things like that. But a forester is one who studies the entire ecosystem of a group of trees or a forest. Christians today need to be forestry majors with a minor in arboriculture, okay? That's an actual word, arboriculture. I looked it up. Forestry majors with a minor in arboriculture. We don't need to remember the moment that we're in and what's in front of us as Christian individuals, but remember the big picture. This is what Peter's doing. Guys, Jesus won. It's over. He's already proclaimed his victory. The end is sure. God wins this war. It may not feel like it in a moment when there are boxes full of baby body parts being loaded on a parcel trucks to goes who knows where all over the world. When Christians are getting locked out of their churches and pastors are getting taken to jail for keeping a weekly service against the wishes of a tyrannical state. When you can burn down a building for the sake of racial reconciliation, but Christians who own that building can't defend it from peaceful protesters, even though their family's legacy and livelihood is in that place. And today, all over the world, the number of Christian martyrs continues to grow. And we're largely insulated from this in America. In closed-door countries where the preaching of the gospel is prohibited, and the torture that our brothers and sisters are enduring, and some have done for decades, for the cross is to us unimaginable. But it's been said that God loves cliffhangers. This is true. The church cannot forget that God wins this war. The victory and rewards are as sure as your salvation in Christ. Think about it, beloved. God waited patiently in the days of Noah. He's not even asking us to do anything that He Himself hasn't done. Jesus suffered with us. God the Father looking down on sinful humanity in the days of Noah had to wait for Noah to build a boat. He had to wait for the ark to be built in the midst of all of this wickedness which deserves immediate judgment. And He showed patience as He waited so He could preserve the seed of the woman so we could be saved, so Christ could be victorious, so the victory is sure, so today we can endure any suffering, any persecution, with patience, with endurance. I think Peter's thoughts are summed up in the words of Samwise Gamgee from The Lord of the Rings. He and 
Frodo Baggins were getting to the conclusion of their journey, but were facing odds that they thought were insurmountable. And Sam says to Frodo, It's all wrong, Mr. Frodo. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like that in the great stories, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was after so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. When the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I think I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories have had lots of chances to turn back, and they didn't because they were holding on to something. And I would respond to you, church, with the question that Frodo asked Sam. What are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? And the answer from Peter is this. The suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus guarantee that everything will be made right in the end. Because Christ, because of Christ, no one who serves the God of heaven can ever lose their reward. Ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that in Christ we are victorious, that in Christ our reward is sure, that no matter how dark it gets, the darkness can no longer overcome the light. It was made to be extinguished. It is part of your story, but that chapter will one day be closed forever. And then we, with all of your saints, will shine like Christ in your very presence. We long for that day. Hasten the day. Bring it soon. We ask in your son's name. Amen.